Welcome to this BJSM podcast. My name is Paul Blazy, and today I'm really happy to welcome Professor Chad Cook. Chad is a professor of physical therapy at Duke University School of Medicine in North Carolina. He's a musculoskeletal clinical researcher with his primary focus on the effect of diagnosis, intervention and outcomes assessment of orthopaedic-related conditions. He has over 250 peer-reviewed papers and is a senior associate editor for the British Journal of Sports Medicine, as well as a special topics editor for the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. Welcome, Chad. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing at Duke and your topics of interest? I'd love to. I've been very lucky. I've been involved with uh, the orthopedic surgeons and their research for about 15 plus years. And, and I work with a lot of individuals who are really looking for identifying the best care patterns and best testing mechanisms, refining the clinical process. And the, the physicians I work with, uh, I think are pretty special. They, they're, they're more interested in how to improve outcomes than they are in how to improve the finances. Uh, they really are in it for the right reason. So it's made a great relationship. It's allowed me to really study surgery. It's, it, to me, it paints surgery in a very different light. I know a lot of people are anti-surgery. I think, you know, I've, I've been able to see through the data and see through the patients some really remarkable changes in a lot of patients. So what sort of outcomes are you particularly interested in in your day-to-day work? You know, for starters, um, we've recognized that the traditional pain and disability outcomes probably are not painting the full picture on a person's recovery process. So we've we've studied alternative outcomes in the past, such as help-seeking behavior. In other words, does a person continue to seek care after they've uh, sought care in the first place? We've looked at medication use, sleep disorders, pain interference, really trying to broaden our spectrum of what measures recovery. And I know you've probably heard people talk about a core set of outcomes measures, but really the underlying reason for a core set is to capture all of the variables related to recovery in a particular patient. And boy, they seem to be different from patient to patient. So I'm really a huge fan of a core set of outcomes measures and really broadening the way that we we measure these changes in our patients. And in terms of the the field, so you're interested in orthopedics in particular, what sort of conditions do you generally tend to see and and what sort of outcomes would you be applying to to one of those conditions if you can give us an example? I think traditionally I've been a a spine researcher, uh, low back and neck, and most of my publications, most of the database work that we look at is in that particular area. So we've looked at um, obviously, look at pain intensity, but we also look at pain interference. So the PEG-3 is a great little tool to capture both. Historically, I've used the Oswestry mostly because everybody else uses it, and it's a common tool to measure your outcomes versus a lot of the traditional outcomes. And and by the way, we just finished a, a really interesting concurrent validity study and classical validation of the ODI. It's been used forever. It's been around and it actually is a pretty good tool. It, we did some predictive validity measures and whether or not the single items of the ODI actually predict occurrences at three months and one year in surgical in a surgical population. And it does a really good job of doing that. Health-seeking behavior is really a lot more difficult to measure because you have to track patients out over time. We're getting better, I think, with our, our health platforms to be able to capture information on patients. But 
it's interesting, a person may get discharged with a particular pain score or a disability score, and then you don't hear from them, but they go somewhere else for care. And, and on our end of it, we don't see that as a success of an outcome, even if they meet a particular threshold or if their the score is you know lower than what you projected. Really, it's about person no longer seeking care. One last measure that I'd like to advocate for is the PASS, and that's the patient acceptable symptom state. Your listeners probably are familiar with this. It's essentially a measure of asking the patients they're okay with their current health state as it is right now. And we've measured that versus your traditional legacy pain and disability measures. And, and often you get very different findings with that. They're a, a process that you have set in place for following up at three months, six months, 12 months post-discharge from your service? There is. Physicians are quite good about this. We have the infrastructure in place to actually capture that data. Duke was a little late, I think, to the party with respect to standardized measures, but now those are embedded in the health records. We use my chart, so we often capture a lot of the legacy measures before they even come in, so you have the data in front of you uh, when you see those patients. By those standard visits, we get the, the standard outcomes. But I will say this, we're like everybody else. I use the QOD, which is a spine registry of about almost 60,000 patients in the U.S. and Canada that have undergone spine surgery. There, there are missing values. Follow-up measures are often poor at two years. You know, maybe 20% of the patients will have follow-up measures. I think Duke probably is consistent with the problem that everybody else has, and that's challenging follow-up. You mentioned that you've been interested in the spine, but I also know that you've had some interest in femoroacetabular impingement syndrome. Where do you stand on the debate in terms of whether femoroacetabular impingement syndrome requires surgery or, or can be rehabilitated as it's a normal adaptation to sport? I am steadfastly on the fence with FAI because I have seen patients' outcomes be markedly improved after the surgery. I We can see the outcomes from our uh, surgeon specialists. And we have two individuals that are really top-notch FAI physicians. One was on the Warwick Agreement. Other is a younger surgeon, but his skills and his outcomes from a surgery are actually quite good. So I see the anecdotal evidence on one side, and then we see the literature on the other side, which really suggests that if a conservative approach probably is going to give you a similar outcome um, than the surgical approach, that potentially the, the positive outcomes we're seeing are the fact that the patients have really reduced their activity and allowed themselves to heal for a while. We've seen the tests and measures and the really poor quality of those. And then, and then we've published the work on the inconsistencies around the radiographic or any type of imaging-based diagnosis. I mean, no one seems to agree on a consensus method for that. Going back to the core outcome set that you mentioned earlier, is there a core outcome set that you guys are using for FAI syndrome? Duke uses three primary measures. They have a disability measure. They have the battery of pain measures that they use, peg free, and they also capture the OSPRO, which gives a psychological profile of the patient, the OSPRO yellow flag. And they've used it in a number of ways. They're using it to guide treatment. So if they have someone that has a, a really high percentage of yellow flags at baseline and follow up, they will make sure that that person gets the appropriate care, and a lot of that psychologically informed care is actually performed by physical therapists, too. So three different measures to really reflect the biopsychosocial framework, pain disability, and the OSPRO, which is 
really more of a yellow flag or a psych-related measure. We're starting to hear now that there's a lot of tests out there for the shoulder, the back, the hip that aren't actually that valid. What, what about tests for femoris or tabular impingement? Are there any that you feel we should be doing or that we shouldn't be? I'm actually glad you asked that because we, we've studied this twice now. We, we first looked at this in a meta-analysis in BJSM in 2012, and we found that most of the tests were sensitive and not specific. And then we followed up again in 2015, and again, we found that the tests were sensitive and not specific. Now, a lot of people think, well, that's all right. You can use them as a screening test. But the problem is, is when your tests are so sensitive and the specificity is so low, which is the majority of FAI tests, that you won't see any change in your post-test probability. You actually won't have the ability to rule out the condition because everyone, whether they have FAI, OA, any condition is going to be positive on that test. And the specificity is so low that your negative likelihood ratio actually is pretty high. Thus, your post-test probability with a negative really doesn't change. So a lot of the surgeons will claim they use this test, they get a negative, then it rules it out. But mathematically, you can't rule it out with any of the FAI tests. We first saw this in our textbook that we published a long time ago. And then when we worked with Mike Grayman to pull, to meta-analyze all of the studies that have looked at this, there is a consistency across the board, the tests really don't have good diagnostic accuracy. In that situation, what would you recommend that we do as clinicians who suspect FAI syndrome? Do we, do we refer on for imaging or, or would you say that we can base it on subjective assessment alone at that point? You probably know that the majority of the complaints against FAI are the fact that so many individuals who are asymptomatic will have positive findings on an image that are related to femoroacetabular impingement. And thus, individuals who go in that are pipelined for this typically have positive imaging findings. I think that that's really troubling. And we talked about that in one of the papers that we published because it seems like by the time they get to, the, to that particular surgeon who's a specialist by FAI, with FAI, the decision's already made regardless of what the clinical finding is going to be. And since the clinical finding is never negative, everybody goes in for surgery. I think there needs to be a pause at a particular point and maybe a rethink about, have we tried conservative care here? And what was the quality of that conservative care? And what are the patient preferences at this point? I think it, you, know, you need to sit down, need to really decide, engage the patient, decide what's best for that particular patient. I think a lot of them don't know how long they're actually going to be down after this surgery, nor do they know the complications that often arise in one or two years after a surgery like this. Last year, Chad, you published a paper as part of a team in the BMJ Open Sports and Exercise Journal, which looked at use of telehealth to assess uh, femoroacetabular impingement syndrome. Can you tell us a little bit about that study and, and what you found? It's an interesting study, and the, the group that was involved, actually, there were two individuals from the Warwick Agreement that were on the group. So we had a really knowledgeable group, and we were interested in really defining why the clinical tests for FAI had performed as poorly as they had in past clinical studies. And we were also interested in whether or not, if you take away the clinical component, the clinician component of actually touching the patient and moving the patient, for example, in a telehealth format, 
would, would we see the same poor diagnostic accuracy in those particular tests? So we tried to combine two things. One was de a decision-making challenge that we were seeing with FAI. And the underpinnings of everything, we wanted to improve our decision-making. And the second thing is we saw this increasing use of telehealth and the potential of telehealth as a screening mechanism for a lot of patients. But before it, we felt that you could incorporate telehealth as a screening mechanism, we had to look at the validity of telehealth. So we thought, let's kill two birds with one stone, and let's actually compare testing mechanisms of FAI with a traditional clinical examination versus a simulated telehealth examination. Interestingly enough, we found that the telehealth examination was about 10% more accurate than the clinical examination. In fact, it, it really wasn't even close. Uh, it was statistically significant, but it was also very clinically meaningful that in totality, the tests performed in a telehealth setting where the, the patient actually simulated the movements themselves doing tests that we created, which we thought were sistered to the clinical tests, they were actually more accurate for the overall diagnosis using the Warwick Agreements guidelines than the clinical test was. I think that's really reassuring for the audience to hear in this time where we're all being asked to move to a telehealth assessment that there was a greater accuracy aligned to that in the findings. Overall, though, would you still consider the test worth doing? You mentioned before that the tests are not that specific, so would you still consider doing them over a telehealth assessment? That's a fantastic question. I mean, if you look at the overall diagnostic accuracy, telehealth tests were just slightly over 50% accurate, which is just a little bit better than a coin flip, whereas the accuracy of the clinical test was actually below 50%, which is terrible. But part of that is the way we measured it. We used diagnostic effectiveness as our overall measure, and that looks at how, what percent of the time was it correctly positive or correctly negative? And a test is generally either sensitive or specific. So it's only going to be accurate on one end of it, whether that be positive when they actually have the condition or correctly negative when they don't have the condition. They're rarely both. So I'm not that surprised that the values are actually close to 50%. Even if you look at good tests and you run kind of a mean diagnostic effectiveness, it's only going to be in the 50 to 70% range. So getting back to your question of would you use these tests? I would use the telehealth tests uh, because I think they were meaningful. They actually captured movement-related phenomena. I think what we need to do now is go back and actually study these in clusters to identify which of the many tests we did are actually really valuable and which in combination are going to be the best in telling us, telling us if that person actually meets the reference standard that we used for the study. Were you surprised to find that as a result of the, the study? 100% surprised. I was the person who ran the statistics and modeled the methodology for the data capture. And I remember running the numbers and then recoding everything again and running the numbers again because I thought there had to be a mistake. And it, But I know now it's not. I also know that it's probably a finding we're going to see more often. We just finished a shoulder study. And we found essentially the exact same thing, with the exception as neither group was better than one another. The, the telehealth shoulder exam was exactly, had the same accuracy as the clinical examination. So I really think that we're going to see this moving forward, that there will be substitute clinical examination methods that you can use in a telehealth format. 
I know that from experience, one of the concerns that I'll often have from patients is they'll often say to me, well, how are you going to assess me when you can't be in the room with me? Did you have any concerns, patients not being able to be assessed in person? The patients served as their own controls in the study, and uh, the, which allowed them to get the simulated telehealth, and it was randomized from either clinic first or telehealth first. But they knew in all cases that they were actually going to receive both examinations. So that wasn't an issue in this study or the shoulder study or the spine study that we're designing right now. I think it potentially is going to be an issue moving forward. However, for other individuals, if we don't offer them some form of hands-on testing or some form of live testing where we're moving them around, I think it's going to take a culture change on the patient's part. And I have to tell you that it's the same concern, I think, that other people have had in the past about telehealth. There's a really nice paper by Lawford and colleagues out of Australia, and they queried physical therapists' impressions about telehealth. And one of their primary concerns was that they wouldn't be able to touch their patient, that they wouldn't be able to gather enough information during testing or during application of care in a telehealth format. I don't think we've completely answered that concern yet, but the immediate testing is looking pretty positive. You've also tried to implement this at Duke with some of the physicians and the surgeons. How have they found it in terms of getting used to a telehealth assessment? I think they struggled with it quite a bit at first. Uh, I think part of it was platform, and telehealth can be provided in many different ways, right? It's the asynchronous with patient decision-making tools and a number of very sterile format, which is, I think, a, probably an ineffective telehealth. There can be calls, again, less effective, a telephone call. It's the video piece that is really essential. And one of the areas they struggled with at first was really how to engage the patient. And once they figured that out after glitches and after the technological issues and such, because we were using a proprietary platform for telehealth, and when they went to Zoom and actually cleaned up and was way more effective. And I've seen WebEx use too, also much more effective than some of the other platforms. The key was, they said, was once they figured out how to engage the patient, they actually found that it was really meaningful and that they got a lot of information from their patient. They felt that the patient being able to have more time with them to interact was also a positive experience. I think a lot of them have, have really changed their thoughts on uh, the value of tele telehealth. So going back to basics and listening to our patients is important, whoever knew. <laughs> so uh, out of your experience, is there any other way that potentially we can allay patients' fears about telehealth assessment if there isn't the option to do a hands-on? Is there any other thing that we can offer them? I think there is. I'm going to do my best to keep this from going to be a long-winded answer. But the nice thing is we always have the option to punt somebody to at a live environment. So if we run into a situation where we identify an individual that's probably not going to function as well in a telehealth environment, now I don't know how to identify those individuals. There are no, I mean, I've seen classifications built about who succeeds on telehealth, who doesn't, but these are mathematical models and they don't necessarily reflect, you know, a real life environment. I, I think you have to play it patient by patient. My experience has been that there are some patients that this works great with. They engage, they are connected, they enjoy the experience. It seems to work out. They recognize that you don't need to use hands-on 
with them, that they can actually have more time to dedicate toward that telehealth visit than a traditional visit. But there are some individuals that's just not going to work on and where you just seem, you can't seem to connect. I, I have done telehealth visits with individuals where the patient is at their uh, child's baseball game and, you know, they're not paying attention. I can, I can absolutely tell. And, or other situations where they're, they're driving in a car. So I think you have to pick the right patient for this and certainly use your opportunity to transfer that patient to a live experience if it doesn't seem to be working out. Do you think there's a digital divide in that people who have more literacy in in terms of using uh, these type of platforms actually work out better on them, or or do you think that it's completely random? No, I think there's a, a major issue with respect to tech literacy. In other words, where do I put my device so that you can see me do this exercise or you can see me walk? And But there's also health literacy. And if you see the reasons why telehealth was originally suggested before COVID and before any, any types of pandemic, it was to reach out to a broader audience, those individuals who may not have the means for visits, and they could use the telehealth as an, an, as an outreach. One of the challenges to telehealth, though, is low health literacy. So even though that's the population we typically want to target, they often have lower socioeconomic means. This is also the population that doesn't seem to work as well in a telehealth environment. I would actually draw the audience's attention to the paper that you published recently as part of a group in JOSPT that looked at the social determinants of healthcare. So just to sum up, Chad, are there any other telehealth trials that you've got ongoing that people might find of interest that we can that we should be looking for the results of? We have a study in which we we have conventional physical therapy for shoulder impingement versus conventional physical therapy with booster sessions, six booster sessions that are telehealth oriented, where we're actually using a, a, a cognitive behavioral approach called the adaptive approach. And so in essence, we are using telehealth as our platform to do a cognitive behavioral management approach. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, the goal of the study is actually to change patient expectations because we have found that the biggest driver and predictor of outcomes for whether a person elects to have surgery or its relationship to long-term disability and pain scores is their expectations going into that intervention. So our goal is to actually try to, to use this adaptation model to change expectations about their particular condition. And we're about at the midpoint of recruitment and probably the most interesting finding, and I'm, and, and I'm blinded to code, so I, I haven't compared groups, but one of the things that we've noticed that is interesting, and I think you might find this, you might find this pretty fascinating, is that patients' expectations are declining over time with the care that they receive because we capture it at four different time points. So in, in other words, they have really high expectations when they begin care, and they, they tend to go down in about two weeks. In another six weeks, they go down even further, and at six months, they decline even further. It's like going to a restaurant, I think. The first time you go, you have high expectations. Maybe you get a decent meal, but the next time you go, you're, you ratchet on your expectations. That's what we're noticing in, in this particular trial. And that's, by the way, regardless if they're on a telehealth platform or the traditional care platform. To wrap up the conversation here, I, I know you have so many papers published and in such a vast area of, of research. Where would you recommend that people follow you if they want to keep up to date? 
So I'm only on one social media platform, and that's Twitter. And I'm at, at ChadCookPT, and I do routinely tweet papers that are meaningful to me, and I, I tweeted one today. But each time that we publish a paper, whether I publish it or my postdoc or my collaborators, I will typically uh, post a summary of that and the where to get that information on my Twitter account. Chad, thanks ever so much for your time today. And I know that you're, you're talking to me from home, so stay safe. Thank you, Paul. I wish the same of you, and I appreciate having me on.